I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Want a weekly roundup of the best CBC Radio programming? Subscribe to the CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Get a digest of the week's top stories. Read in-depth articles. Listen to interviews and documentaries. And get the lowdown on upcoming stories from CBC Radio 1 that you need to hear. To subscribe, go to cbc.ca slash radio and look for the subscribe button. The CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Be informed. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome back to Play Me. Today is a special bonus episode, an interview with the playwright of the Fish Eyes trilogy, Anita Majumdar. For those of you who are new to our show, we take some of the country's best theater productions and transform them into audio dramas. We then podcast them in three chapters and follow each up with an in-depth interview with the playwright. If you haven't yet listened to the Fish Eyes trilogy, we highly recommend you do. It's a humorous and poignant trio of one-act plays, each told from the perspective of a different high school girl from Port Moody, B.C. It's a unique opportunity to get inside the minds of three distinct teens as they struggle with cultural identity, feeling like an outsider, and romantic heartbreak. You can listen to it by subscribing to our feed through your favorite podcast player, or you can listen online by visiting cbc.ca forward slash playmecbc. Anita Majumdar is an award-winning, multidisciplinary artist who has performed on stages across Canada, including the Stratford Festival, Theatre Passe and the Alberta Theatre Projects. She was awarded the Governor General Protégé Prize in Playwriting in 2013 and won two Door Awards for her work on the Fish Eyes trilogy. She's also an award-winning film and television actress, most notably for the role in the Canadian television film Murder Unveiled. I had a great chat with Anita. Our conversation covered a wide breadth of topics, everything from her process and the challenges of writing as a woman of colour, to how her training as a classical Indian dancer has impacted her acting and playwriting in completely unexpected ways. Anita also talked about the controversy surrounding her work on Murder Unveiled and how the Me Too movement has changed the way audiences relate to the Fish Eyes trilogy. Here is my interview with Anita Majumdar. Thank you so much for joining us, Anita, and thank you so much for giving us the Fish Eyes trilogy. We mm-hmm. really enjoyed working on it, recording it, putting it together. Oh, thank you so much for choosing it. Um, it's it's really, really meaningful to me. I've said this a number of times that uh, the Fish Eyes trilogy is, is a Canadian story, that mm-hmm. it isn't uh, sh- sure it has uh, aspects that are culturally specific, but mm-hmm. it is at its heart, a Canadian story. So to be included in in programming like this um, really just fortifies that fact. 
That's great. For anyone who hasn't listened to it yet, can you give us just a short summary of what the Fish Eyes trilogy, the three short plays, are about? Sure. So it, uh, the Fish Eyes trilogy takes place in my hometown of Port Moody, British Columbia, uh, and follows three separate women who attend the same high school. And on top of uh, attending the same high school, uh, we follow them in a repeated uh, a repeated incident that occurs at a school assembly um, that that happens just before spring break uh, at their high school in grade twelve, and uh, each woman has to negotiate the the consequences of that incident within their own lives and within the student populace using some form of Indian dance as a catalyst. What struck me was how universal it was, how it brought up so many feelings for me about life in high school for me. there is It's such a struggle for most mm-hmm. people. How much of you is in this piece? It's sometimes shocking how much <laughs> of my like life in my 30s made it into the Fish Eyes trilogy. Um, but I, what I think I've done is use the Fish Eyes trilogy in the, the sort of the high school landscape as a drawing board for those experiences. So I've still used sort of my imagination as a writer and, and as a person and as a creator um, to find new form for those in the way of other characters and the other experiences outside of my own. So I think they're actually quite masked and quite disguised mm-hmm. um, in that nothing in the show has actually directly happened to me, but it's been fueled by things that have happened to me or things that have bothered me or I've seen in other people as related to me. Because that's the old cliche. You write about what you know about, which is yourself. How do you find that delicate line between tapping into your experience and just not having you on the page? Uh, I've... That's actually a really great question because it's one that I ask myself a lot. I was in a conservatory training program for acting where we were constantly asked, is this drama therapy? What are you are <laughs> what you are doing right now? Is it for the for the craft or is it mm-hmm. drama therapy? And the answer always had to be craft. Mm-hmm. If you were there for drama therapy, like it was just the worst thing you could possibly say. So I fought constantly, and I, I don't actually think there's anything wrong with drama therapy. I think it's important. I think we're all in this craft as well because we're there's some part of us that's looking for answers or looking for personal truths. Yeah. Uh, but trying to find the line of what, when is it about me singularly where it actually has no value to anyone else. I think the only real means of doing that is making sure you have an outside eye. Um, I couldn't imagine working on this show without Brian Quirt, uh, Mm -hmm. without the support of Night Swimming, uh, also the BAMF Center, um, and the numerous, numerous mentors and just support systems across this country that have invested in the Fish Eyes trilogy at some point in its development. I think a lot of people have this image of a writer as uh, somebody who's working completely solo in a bubble and just drinking hard liquor and (laughs) writing and erasing. But you mentioned that there are other people. How do you work with others? For somebody who has no background in theatre or maybe writing at all, what's the process of you working with somebody else? 
Brian and I will have meetings. He'll ask me how he can support me. And usually it's just him asking me questions. That's actually the most supportive point in that, that I wouldn't even call it phase one. It's like this sort of prequel to development Mm -hmm. that begins where it's just brainstorming and it's me trying to figure out what is, what's the story? What am I trying to do? Uh, Once I sort of chalk down, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to write. I then embark on working on a first draft. And then when we start to get into the form of like, okay, now there's a draft. That's when it's, I think it's actually the hardest work is that middle, that tunnel period Mm -hmm. where it's like, when is this thing going to be done? When is it, when is it going to make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, That's me and Brian just sitting in a room saying, all right, like, let's be really cutthroat with this in the edits. Do you toss a lot away? A lot. A lot gets tossed. How do you do that? What's that? It's pretty heartbreaking. I'm not going to lie. It's Mm -hmm. really, really tough. There have been moments where I felt there's a line or a a section that that was the impetus to writing the show in the first place Mm -hmm. that gets cut. That I imagine it being the momentum that helped me write the show, that allowed me to get excited about it. And to then have to cut it is Mm. really tough, but... It's also serving the greater story. Sure. But it served its purpose. Yeah, it did it, its thing. You know, like if that's what got me through. Um, um, a great example is um, I had this line in Boys With Cars. Um, I believe the section is uh, after the school assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, buddies hanging all over Candace and looks at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that section the bullying really escalates. Uh, And there used to be a line in there that talked about how Buddy and Candace were this kind of, um, like a kind of great, great Gatsby, uh, a couple who Miss Saigon all over me and Lucky. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just such a brilliant idea to turn Miss Saigon into a verb. Uh, And Brian said, you, you, we need to cut this. It's, not that it isn't a good line, it's that it takes us out of what is happening into the, the immediacy of this mm. scene. Because what's happening is we're relating thing after thing after thing. And what this line does is actually comments on what is happening, which sure. you need the audience to do. So we know the characters come from Port Moody. You come from Port Moody. There's a little bit of overlap with uh, the piece and your life. Is there any other reason why you placed it in Port Moody other than just that was the background? Is there something special about life in Port Moody as a teenager? I think the both remarkable and unremarkable thing about Port Moody is that it is a sub-in for any small town in Canada Mm -hmm. that I think when you hear about Port Moody and, you know, we've had audience members who uh, you can tell right away when someone is from Port Moody, they'll, they'll understand the, all the sulfur jokes, all the, (laughs) um, just those like bits of information that tell us about Port Moody senior secondary. Mm -hmm. But in essence, we, we don't have to have ever been to Port Moody. I don't actually highly recommend going to Port Moody. Um, but that in that sense of what we were talking about earlier in terms of the, the what is the Canadian story and mm-hmm. to feel included within that Canadian story, that you can be a person of color and still have a sort of small town, Canadian town story and feel like a fish out of water, 
but still be a person of color that I've, mm-hmm. I grew up in an era where those stories about being in sort of small town Canada was always centered around someone who was white. Yes. And yeah. I, I could relate, but I couldn't relate to the, the aspect of being white where, where a culture, where you're able to look in a magazine and see someone who looks a little bit like you mm-hmm. or, or find something within the cultural makeup that you are that is represented in something that is beautiful or something that is desired or ideal. Mm-hmm. So it's, and especially in small towns, that's where you need it the most. You need a kind of reflection to feel like, oh, oh, I'm a part of this country. I'm a part of the fabric that makes this country. But having grown up in an era that was like, oh, we let you into our country, but this is, here's us in our pop culture, in our mainstream, um, reflecting to you people who don't actually belong here. We just let you come here and mm-hmm. live here. Um, and history would indicate otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this country has a, a long history with people of color, um, good and bad. Mm-hmm. But Port Moody, when you have no vehicle, you have really only the bus, yeah. and all you do is dream about leaving Port Moody, that place haunts you. It, it, it sticks with you, but it is not a unique experience. Yeah. It was also such a pivotal time in your life, too, and that seems mm-hmm. to be wherever you became a person as, as a yes. preteen really gets into your bones. Absolutely, and it, it it's also survival, right? It's yeah. the... I mean, truly, if you can survive high school, what can't you do? Uh, it's 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 remarkable what mm-hmm. we're asked to do, and 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 high school so often is treated like, oh, oh, fun. The real work will begin when you leave high school. Nothing like you know, work life just gets harder when you're an adult, and it really downplays the experience of being a teenager. I, I truly like with each generation, I'm I marvel at how much harder it gets to be a teenager mm-hmm. that actually doesn't get easier. And we think it is because, you know, we have technology, we have computers and we have all this access around the world or to the world. And in some ways it just makes it harder. And it's just new ways of finding, um, finding ways of tormenting each other um, and, and learning how to torment, right? Like learning mm-hmm. how hierarchy works, learning why there are double standards and questioning them to a degree, but also not if you're in a position of privilege. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, I learned a lot in high school and I think that's why I've spent so much time writing about it because it was, I mean, I mean scarring sounds so... Sure. Um, <laughs> Brutal. Uh, but high school is a microcosm of the operatives of w- how life works in the adult world, that there are certain rules for girls and certain rules for boys. And and hopefully if you still have the energy after leaving high school that you yeah. you can do the work of trying to undo some of those, some of that programming. Mm-hmm. The late, great John Kaplan, who was, Mm -hmm. he was the famed theater reviewer Mm -hmm. of Now Magazine. He said after one of your performances, I think it was Boys With Cars, that he had never seen so much anger on stage. And that was said as a compliment. What was your reaction to that? There's a reason to be angry that we so often censor women from displaying that particular emotion, especially as women of color, that 
uh, I want to be really clear, I am not black, but the the stereotype of the angry black woman is a real thing mm-hmm. and that so many black women across across the world, across this country, across this continent, are encouraged to downplay that emotion because it's not as attractive. Mm -hmm. It's no one's going to want to date you. Like you're going to have a really hard time finding a boyfriend. Like all the problems that are wrong with all of those comments. Uh, But we don't question it. We just accept it. I mean, Naz's whole life is taken away Mm -hmm. um, because they chose to believe the douchey white guy yeah. uh, who has the most power in that school, who has a history of being a douchebag, but everyone chooses to believe Buddy. Yeah. Um, it is the thing the play doesn't overtly say, but is extremely close to my heart, is that we, people of color, aren't here to invade. We're, mm-hmm. we're here for the same opportunities um, that are afforded to all Canadians. Right. So Nas, in a sense, is really confused because this is her first real interaction with, oh, oh, I'm not like the rest of you. I'm so stupid. I, I, you know, I thought I was one of you because my boyfriend was. And boyfriend being Lucky Punjabi, who dons this like English accent, which then kind of situates him on the other side of that line in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. You talked a little bit about this, but I'm just wondering how things have changed, particularly within the past couple of years with the Me Too movement. To me, the whole show was about imbalance of power. And now we're seeing, in some cases, a shift in power. I was actually running the full Fish Eyes trilogy at Factory Theatre here in Toronto uh, when the Me Too movement just started, just tipped the iceberg. Uh, Harvey Weinstein had been called out towards the end of our run. What was the most astonishing through that process of doing the show and also watching the Me Too movement really find its legs uh, is that people cared. You know, like doing the show for 15 years and in some cases, you know, you, you have audiences who are like, why is this relevant? Like, oh, so I guess you're just one of those feminists. Um, I had a teenage boy in at, uh, during um, our Young People Theater's performance of Boys With Cars. He, it wasn't even a question. He put his hand up in, during the talk back and said, so I guess, am I to assume after watching all of this, I guess you're just a feminist, right? And it was hurled at me with this kind of like this vitriol, like that feminist, like that word uh, was this awful, the, the worst thing you could call a woman is this in his mind. And I remember answering that by saying, you know what, I, I don't actually think the F word is the F word anymore. I think the real F word is feminist. And I encourage the ladies in this in this audience to to really fight against that that it is not an insult to be called a feminist but to then graduate into this new territory of like yeah we're feminist and yeah me too and yeah we we aren't victims we're survivors mm-hmm. like this is all content that I have been working with you mean like, I have heard the survivor song like more times than I can possibly 
possibly explain to you. It's a theme. It's a, the word surviving, it, it, it lives in a very particular way in this play. And suddenly the play and time met each other. You mentioned classical Indian dance, and you're, of course, very well known for that as well. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your relationship to it. It it seems to be much more than just a dance style. The thing about um, Indian dance is that it actually exists within the way uh, culturally Indian people speak, and we speak with our hands. Um, And I think that even, you know, you'll meet people who are like, oh, I don't know anything about classical Indian dance, who are Indian. And I'm like, actually, you do. Actually, that's what the, it can sometimes feel really codified, like, oh, these gestures mean this thing. Actually, it's just based off of this is how we as a culture and as a people talk. And these are the, the, the hand signals that we would use when trying to describe this thing. And that's what really interested me. And that's sort of the, the, the carryover to the Fish Eyes trilogy was how do you use this thing that is so codified, even within its sort of commonplace people, where people off, off the street wouldn't be able to tell you what a Indian dance recital, what, what was the story without words? How would you know what the story was? And I was really interested in the sort of the sign language quality of Indian dance. Has your background in classical Indian dance informed your writing or your performance in ways that we wouldn't expect? Uh, I, I don't know if people expect this or not, but I, I think in dance. Uh, I, I write in dance. One of the first things that I, when I begin writing is work out what music and dances do I want in this play. And that is the thing that encourages and and in a way acts as a muse to writing the rest of the show so the words just sort of habituate around the these sort of dance sequences and sometimes we get rid of those dance sequences because they've again like I said they serve their purpose Mm -hmm. the bizarre part of it is that I actually didn't start dancing till I was 18 really yeah uh but I'd always wanted to uh I had taken ballet and um when I was six and my mom was using it as a sort of a jumping off point to convince my dad to let me take take Indian dance. But mm-hmm. I quit ballet because my school bully was in my class. And I was so self-conscious. I hated every single minute of it. Um, because now on the weekends, I had to also be tormented by this person. And I asked to quit. And my mom said, well, th- that was your shot. That was going to be the thing that let you do Indian dance. And now you can't do it. Like now you have to reap the consequences. And it, it, was, it was just something that never left me that I would watch. I'd study Bollywood movies, um, watching the dance moves, and I just do it myself. And then I joined a dance troupe when I was in university at UBC. And so we also recreated uh, these sort of famous Bollywood dances uh, for, for various functions alongside my classical training, which I was doing at the same time once I went to university. But I had to fight for it. I had to fight for dance to be in my life. And maybe that's partly why it exists in everything I do is because I had to fight so hard for it. Um, my dad, I almost moved out of the house um, because my dad had set these really strict rules about, okay, you're going to UBC. It's a really big leagues now. I had a no dating policy uh, implemented on me during high school. 
My dad wanted to extend that no dating policy into university because it was so important. Education was so, so important. But he didn't want me to dance. He said, like, I don't want anything to distract you from being excellent at being a student. And we had it out. Uh, it was so, so important to me. And, and so maybe, maybe on some level, that's, that's why it shows up in my work. But I also think just on a pure aesthetic level, I, Indian dance is so theatrical. And even within Indian culture, we actually don't have a word that describes theater per se. That when you refer to theater, you're actually referring to dance and music together. And then, and acting is just, it's assumed there will be acting. I'm dying to find out what your dad thinks about <laughs> Indian dance now and in your career. I've actually never asked him what his opinion of Indian dance is now. But I will say he loves watching the trilogy. You can't stop him from coming to watch it. I think he understands the appreciation that that comes with me being a dancer and me um putting it in my work. A lot of your film work has been critically acclaimed and, and of course embraced by both those inside the South Asian community and outside, but there's also been a little bit of controversy, especially about the, the particular pieces. I'm thinking about um, Salman Rushdie's adaptation of Midnight's Children. I'm even thinking about Murder Unveiled. Can you talk a little bit about some of the controversy behind those two pieces? Sure. I think the most controversial was actually Murder Unveiled, which is mm-hmm. a CBC film, and I think think quite a highly successful CBC film, like as far as how much traction it got. It's a very, very special story to the West Coast. It's a very tragic story to the West Coast uh, where a a family actually put out a uh, assassination order on their on their daughter who had gone off and married an auto rickshaw driver in India. She was killed. Uh, He was badly beaten up, uh, has fought for years to get what is known as justice for Jussie. The controversy around that, there was a lot of heat on us. Um, There's a lot of heat on me for taking the role. I had to tell my parents not to go anywhere near the area that they lived, um, the South Asian Canadian community in on the West Coast was really divided as well. They said really terrible things about me, terrible things about everyone who was involved. There were spies on set for them um, trying to get work, chatted me up, and then said, I don't want my portion of the movie shown. You need to shut down production because I don't consent anymore to were having my appearance. Uh, one of them had a, they had the like a role of a suitor, so mm. partial speaking. Um, things like that, like they were working really? really, really hard to shut the production down. Really, really hard to shut um, the airing of it down. But nothing really did stop it. And if anything, it just kept being played on the CBC for years. Like I would get these... like messages from people around the country saying they're playing murder unveiled again like you're on my tv again like i like you but uh (laughs) it's enough already and it but Mm -hmm. these are canadians who did this to their child another canadian citizen and the government's doing nothing they're treating it like it's some kind of cultural issue and like 
and the sort of quote unquote honor killings. Yeah. And it really brought to the forefront this idea of there's a, there's no honor in that. There's like, and we need to, when we refer to it, we need to put it in quotation marks and sort of debunking this idea of, oh, this is a specialized kind of abuse that's maybe okay because we don't know about it and it's cultural and ethnic. Mm-hmm. That actually what we're talking about is domestic abuse. And domestic abuse isn't particular to any one particular culture. It's awful no matter where you go. And the victims are most often women. And the sort of debriefing of Murder Unveiled was how this isn't culturally specific abuse that was somehow afforded to this one community. Yeah, it really allowed a lot of conversation for that, but it, it wasn't without its trouble and its, its hardships. You've been doing this for a long time. Uh, Fish eyes, you mentioned, 15 years. I'm just wondering how things have changed or maybe not changed for writers, particularly women, women of color. I entered this industry at a time where it was very supportive. And, and maybe that's because I had this sort of idea and there was, we were sort of on the horizon of this cultural inclusivity again, just on the precipice of social media. So we were interested in other stories from new voices and particularly female voices. But I feel like I was a part of a, you know, there's been so many waves of, right, South Asians are hot this year. Um, I must have been in one of those sort of subsequent waves, but there was a lot of interest in me and the work that I was writing. And and I know there are many, many writers who who haven't benefited in that same way. Yeah. But in my experience, I've only seen uh, sort of an escalation of interest. That said, the interest has escalated. The remuneration and support still remain a fighting point. And, you know, we're still talking about pay equity and uh, gender gap Um if we're having that conversation, usually in as it pertains to the sort of directors and actors and, and designers, it is 10 times worse for writers. What advice would you give to a young writer, particularly a young woman writer, who is about to start their first piece? They're looking at a blank screen. What kind of advice would you give them? Uh, I would say write everything you know down. And what you know isn't going to present itself all at once. When I was first writing, I I didn't call it writing because I didn't think that's what a writer did. Because talking to yourself at two in the morning, writing down sort of bits and fits of dialogue onto into, you know, like a scrapbook, uh, walking around the city, listening to music, and then suddenly being able to write a scene because you're just talking to yourself in your head, that to me wasn't what a writer did. I think it was Mindy Kaling in her first book who had said, you know, there's this picture of the way a writer's supposed to look. And she actually puts in this photograph of her at a desk sitting like very, like wearing a blazer, sitting very prim and proper. Um, And then she says, this is actually what it looks like. And there's a photo of her in bed, like with a bag of chips, um, like just not all done up and that's what writing looks like for her and that's okay that 
I think, you know, we go out and buy these special pens thinking like, oh, this will make me a writer. We invest in final draft and thinking, oh, now I'm a writer, um, that that validation only comes from you, actually. You have to believe in it, um, even when you can't and you don't want to. And that's why I say write everything down. Because even those moments where it's really tough to say, hey, yeah, I'm a writer. You look at those notes and you're like, I wrote them down. Like, there's something there. So, yeah, I'm a writer. That's great. Thank you so much for writing the Fish Eyes trilogy and letting us put it together and produce it for Play Me. Uh, it was such a joy to work on, and I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. It was such a joy to work on for me as well. Um, it's been a really, really special experience. That's great. Thank you. We'd love to hear what you think of our show. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca. And please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes to help get the word out about our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Expect Theatre and on Instagram at Play Me Podcast. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley. The associate producer is Pippa Johnstone. This episode was edited by Chris Tolley. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.